outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 129. Today in the show, I'm joined by Pat Reeve of Driven TV, and we're going to be discussing his tactics for hunting mature bucks in hilly country and much more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And as I just mentioned, we've got Pat Reeve with us on the show today. And during this conversation, we discuss his experiences hunting the bluff country of Wisconsin and Minnesota and a whole lot more. But unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, we actually lost most of the introduction to this conversation in which we heard about Pat's background. So with that being the case, here's the really short Cliff Notes version. Pat started out as a guide for Bluff Country Outfitters in Wisconsin's Buffalo County, and then he went on to produce the North American Whitetail television show, and then finally his own show, Driven TV with Pat and Nicole. So Pat's hunted all across the country, but his roots and tons of his experiences is in this hilly country, and so that's what most of our conversation today is focused on. That said, though, we're going to keep this intro short and get you right into that discussion. But quickly, before we get to that, we need to pause to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of this podcast. And today, we have a Sitka story from Matt McCormick, a friend of mine and a hunter and photographer out of Montana, who recently went on his first Midwestern whitetail bow hunt in southern Ohio. And right at the end of this trip, after a lot of long days on stand, finally a big-bodied, heavy-horned buck appeared, headed right his way. And Matt describes the moments that followed. At this point, I can't shoot him. So I calm myself down. But the presence of him was unlike anything I've ever felt before. Everything was just dead calm, you know. Even them just walking around was so quiet because there was dew on the ground. And I just, I just felt like he knew I was there the whole time. And, and he never really made any movements that, that said that 
he knew I was there. I just felt like, I don't know. It was just the weirdest. I don't know if that was a feeling. It was just like the weirdest feeling that I've ever felt before. I've never felt anything like it with him that close right behind me. And so he's pushing these does around and grunting and, and he runs down the hill and runs back up and, and, you know, so he runs, basically runs away and I'm, I'm just like, gosh, that was awesome. And then he runs back and like, Oh, he's back again. And, and that went back and forth for, you know, like I said, 10, maybe even 15 minutes. And then finally I'm watching him and he runs these two does and he's running them right at me and they split. And when they split, one is coming right at me and he's, she's going to come right out from the spruce tree, right into my opening. And that's exactly what happened. The doe came through his opening, the buck followed, and Matt came to full draw. But in the heat of the moment, and Matt stuck trying to pick whether to aim for 35 yards or 40, he let the arrow go and watched it sail past the buck, and the deer ran off untouched. And then the buck stopped and turned back. And so we shared this moment of like, him and I both staring at each other. I can see him. He knows I'm there, but he can't see me. And he's just stomping his foot and stomping his foot and stomping his foot. And this doe kind of bounded off. She saw the whole thing go down, but she never blew. She just kind of ran. And we just stared at each other, which felt, it felt like it was 10 minutes where we just stood there and stared at each other. And eventually she blew she blew out in front of me and he just does this top jump 90 degree turn in the air and just starts bounding away and just blows and blows and blows and, and, and he was gone. And that's when I started to shake the most. We shared this moment and then he left. And for about a minute or two, I, I kind of, questioned what really just happened how did I you know there was all sorts of things going in going through my mind um you know where did I hit how did I how did I miss that opening must not have been big enough what an incredible experience oh my gosh that deer was a giant and watching him run away was like a like a image in a in a you know any sort of magazine that you see where you just see these giant deer running away and and then I started shaking bad and it got worse before it got better. <laughs> <laughs> I can certainly relate to that feeling right there. So as mentioned, this was a Sitka story, as Matt was wearing Sitka's whitetail system on this hunt. And in fact, if you take a look at Sitka Gear's social media, catalogs, or website, you're likely to see many of Matt's photos there as well. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear for yourself, you can visit sitkagear.com. Next, I also want to quickly let you know about another limited-time promotion from our partners at Huntera Maps, who now through December 4th are offering 20% off all of their maps. And you've likely seen Huntera's maps in our videos and articles, but if not, you need to check these out. They have full-blown wall-sized maps, smaller field maps, magnetized maps, and everything in between. They include high-quality aerial imagery of your property, along with topo lines, 3D shading that shows terrain features, and even the option to add custom markups for food plots and other habitat work. So if you'd like to pick up a map of your own property or want to get one of these for a Christmas gift for a friend or family member, now's the time to do it as this 20% off promotion lasts from now till December 4th. So head on over to Huntera.com to check that out. 
And now back to the show. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be dropping right into the middle of this conversation as Pat Reeve and I discuss his experiences hunting whitetails in hill country. So, so speaking of the how-to stuff, I kind of want to go back in time to what you were doing early on when you were working with Bluff Country Outfitters and Tom. And I've heard a lot of great things about what Tom's done there, and, and it sounds like you were probably involved with that too. What did you learn about hunting in that kind of terrain at that point? You know, that bluff country, hilly, you know, the the driftless area of Wisconsin. What's hunting like there? Well, uh, you, you know, of course I grew up in this country. So I learned early on, um, you know, a lot about hunting in the driftless area or the bluff country area. Um, after I've got a chance to hunt around the world, for whitetails, I have soon to realize that actually this bluff country can be the hardest place to hunt mature bucks, um, and and there's there's plenty of them here. Don't get me wrong, but there's a couple things why this country is very hard to hunt versus say Iowa or Illinois um, or Kansas. It, and a lot of it has to do with the topography or the terrain. And this area is, like, very hilly. And the bucks, a big mature buck, knows how to use that terrain to his advantage. He knows how to bed in it. He knows how to get visuals. Um, of course, when when hunting, the wind is terrible <laughs> uh, for the most part. So you're always fighting wind issues and constant swirling winds because the hills create that vortex and they create all this swirling effect and a lot of times you know you get busted as you're you're trying to hunt uh, the deer um so it's it's a tricky proposition to hunt this versus you know like i said you're hunting in illinois you're hunting in iowa it's flatter ground truer winds um the winds are more consistent there so you know up here it's a lot different of course you know deer I said they they bed in certain spots where you know, they'll bed with the wind at their back where they're laying out on a ridge or on a point, and then they can see anything that might be below them. So any sense of danger that they smell or see, they're instantly, you know, one hop, they're completely out of sight and gone. They're just, that's how easy it is for them. And they, they learn that as they get older, believe me. Um, but back working for Tom kind of rewinding you know one of the things that really helped me or make you know fine-tune my hunting skills was that every day we're taking out I was taking out you know four to six hunters per person Tom would take some and I would put them in tree stands that I hung specifically for a reason um, they became I was like a computer base I mean those people were out there just like I would be, only they were sitting in, you know, in strategy points that I thought would put them in the best hunting situation. And they would come back and, of course, tell me what they seen, how the deer were traveling. And I learned really quick what worked and what didn't because it was like six of me out there every day. So, right. you know, and then Tom, of course, we strategized on what was, you know, what the deer were doing. And over the course of time, we really learned that, I mean, you really had to transition with the deer, um, the deer movements, their habits, 
what affects their movements, whether it's moon, the acorns, water, food, whatever. There's pressure. There's a lot of things that change deer habits and deer movement, and I've, obviously I've learned that over the years. And that and guiding, obviously, was a big portion of that, and, you know. But I still go out there thinking I got it figured out, and, and I'm still <laughs> learning. So I'm not going to pretend that I know it all for sure because I don't. They they still get you every day. And, of course, when we're – I mean, we do this for a living, so we have to be out there. We can't, you know, a lot of times wait for the perfect day to go hunting. And neither can a lot of other people. They can relate to that because they t- have vacation slotted for a certain time, and and, and they got to pick pick their week to take off and to go hunting for the entire week and so you know they they don't have you know luxury of being able to hunt all the time either so in in our situation we're often going on to the next state because minnesota here you get one deer per year so that obviously is not going to help you make 20 original episodes (laughs) uh, (laughs) by just using one deer so we we got to move and we got to get to the next next state so we we try to target hunting uh, our state and other states at the right times. And that's what other people should do, too, if you're traveling or going out of state, is just figuring out that proper, that the best time to be there. How do you do and, that? And, well, each state's different. Like I just, like we talked about earlier, um, I know if I take my son to on a youth hunt to Kansas early season, the odds are he's going to probably shoot a big mature buck on a food source early on because the deer are just on a pattern. Um, and and you can you can get on them. Like most people, you know, that love whitetails are out watching deer early season coming out to, you know, alfalfa fields, bean, bean fields, whatever. They're, they're watching these deer all summer, and if they could go hunt them, they would kill them, especially if they had a firearm in their hand no different than going to Kansas early season. So um, that's one of them things where I know that that's high probability. Now, of course, that's not for me because I can't, we don't have the luxury, but they make that for the youth to get them youth started and involved in a positive hunting situation, and it works. Before the schools really kick off and get started, and there's some great hunting opportunities, and anybody thinking about youth hunting should think about going to Kansas in the future. And, of course, there's a lot of public hunting opportunity there. More, better public hunting for big whitetails than any other state in the entire United States. And it's because they offer public, uh, it's a program called walk-in hunting for the public, but it's on private lands. Um, there's thousands and thousands of acres enrolled in that program and, and uh, makes that opportunity very good. So and of course the state is covered with big white tails. Yeah, you know, helps. all the way from north, south, east, west. I mean there's there's big deer everywhere there. So um, something somebody should think about. And of course that that goes all the way throughout the entire season. I mean whether you're an archer and you just want to go out there. I mean great out hunting opportunity, but you do have to draw a tag, tag draw situation. It's not over the counter like Minnesota, Wisconsin. So anyways, I mean. You know, picking these spots are really what ultimately becomes a challenge for us because the rut happens just for a short period of time. 
and and our season is so tight. Uh, if we, if the deer rutted, <laughs> you know, three quarters of the year, half the year, boy, it'd be a much different situation. But we're talking, we gonna make hay for about a three week period, and then it's over for the rut. I mean, and and then your course, your chances start to dwindle, unless you focus in on those early season opportunities, and then late season opportunities if Mother Nature, you know, goes your way. So, um, you know, our season. It just give you a kind of a, a rundown, of course, uh, like our early season starts, you know, like I said, in Kansas, a lot of times um, we go there. I've I've hunted North Dakota early for velvet deer before. That's a, it's always been a good opportunity. They've had some winter die-offs here in the last several years that kind of knocked their populations back. I know that people hunt Missouri early um, sometimes. Um, there's... Kentucky starts real early, of course, velvet opportunity there. There's certain states that open earlier than others, like Iowa doesn't open until October 1. Um, I believe Illinois is the same way. So some of these states don't open until a little bit later on. Of course, Minnesota and Wisconsin is the middle of September for archery season. So um, finding these states that have those early early seasons is, is key. Now, when it as as the early season kind of transpires into that October period, of course, we hit that low, October low period, and that gets even trickier because now the deer lull out, and we're kind of, we're entering that period right now here in the in Minnesota. I was hunting last night with a good friend of mine, Jeff Janis, who plays for the Packers. We were, we were actually at Tom's place last night, and the deer are... You know, last week they were more visible on food plots, and now they're becoming less. And we're counting on cameras to kind of tell that story somewhat. And also we're, you know, coming off a full moon period too. So that's that's another thing that kind of adds into the equation. But, um, yeah, I saw a lot of deer last night eating acorns. Uh, we're sitting right on the edge of acorns and a uh, food source. And a, and a water hole as well. So, you know, I saw a lot of deer in the inside of the woods eating white oaks, uh, white oak acorns. So that, that's what's right now affecting deer movements and, and affecting it in a big way. And, of course, we hear October lull, you know, it's a very common phrase, but it's really that the deer movements are very minimal. Deer don't have to move in the Midwest, you know, in Minnesota and Wisconsin right now very far, especially in our country, because they can stand up out of their bed and can eat their primary food source, which is acorns right now, and t- not take five steps and lay and fill up and lay back down and not have there is no travel to and from their bed to their food source like there is later on. So right now, with the acorns being on the ground, they're going to gorge, and eat, that's what they're going to primarily eat. For the most part. So how do you hunt so, deer in that kind of situation where there's so little movement and you have to get, I imagine that at least for me, the challenge is always how do you get in there to hunt that food that's also so close to where they bed without spooking them? Very tricky. How we do it, there's a couple ways. So if you're going to go and hunt acorn ridges and acorn trees, mass acorn, you know, tree, crop trees that really are producers, um, and and it, it can be effective, but the odds of you spooking that deer, running that deer out of there, are very high. 
so here's what we do. I mean, I'll go in there and hunt when there's a, you know, a fair amount of noise in the woods, which you know, is created by wind or rain, element that really buffers your sound and movement. So you can get into a tree without blowing everything out and, you know, I mean, wind and, and rain is about the only time to do that. If you go on a quiet day, you're going to probably, you know, probably blow things out of there. So, you know, trickier, trickier time to hunt, um, but a lot of times we use wind, rain, weather to our advantage. And, of course, in the bluff country, we use that same thing if we're hunting low. Um, a lot of times if it's real windy, you know, the, the bottom fields or bottom areas become more affected because deer don't like that wind as much. They'll go down in those lower, lower areas and they might feed at the bottom of the ridges or go out of those bottom fields at night. But then you deal with wind issues a little bit. So um, as time transpires later on, of course, all the leaves are off the tree and hunting low can be tricky because if you're going to walk up a valley system and you're going to be exposed, you're going to be, you know, out in the wide open, you a weather element helps kind of cut that visibility issue for them, for them spotting you walking or getting into your, your stand location. So, you know, sleet, snow, rain, whatever, really helps uh, to hunt those low, low area times. And we learned that, you know, a long time ago. So um, that, that, you know, that's one of our tricks. Another thing um, that we do, and we do it, I think one of the probably the biggest things that really affects our success here is not, I mean, and I think if I, I talk to a lot of people and they show me that, they show me a picture of a big deer and they're like, you know, I had this big deer on camera a lot and I know he lives there, he's very residential, got lots of photos of him, but every time I go and hunt him, I don't see him. What, what's going on? And, and I, it's pretty simple. I think that the biggest thing is, is they're tipping a, they're tipping that deer off that they're hunting him, and he of course changes his pattern or his his travel plans and doesn't come their way, simply because they've already alerted them that they're in the woods. So you got to be you got to think a little bit like a deer. You gotta <laughs> you gotta figure try to figure out how to get in there, you know, quietly and get set up on them and not alarm any other deer. And sometimes it might not be alarming that deer, but you might blow some does out of there that run, take off running through the woods, and if a buck's bedded off, he'll figure out, well, something spooked them deer. He ain't going to get up and start walking that way later on, an hour later. Or if he hears a deer blowing off in that direction, he's going to avoid danger. He knows even a squirrel barking sometimes to them is, is danger. So um, those little things can make a big difference. And... Um, trying to figure out how to use that train um, and, and, and getting in and getting set up on them without tipping them off can be very crucial. So now, how do we do it? There's a couple different ways, but uh, in, in the Midwest here, if I have the opportunity to have somebody driving me to my tree stand, whether it's in an ATV, a car, vehicle, whatever, drop me off and then leave that's the best case scenario because they're used to vehicles, they're used to machinery, they're used to those noises, and it doesn't present a danger to them. They 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 pay attention to it, I think, when they're bedded or or nearby, 
But then after the sound leaves, then they, they go back to their normal travel patterns or normal routine. So, you know, and then we don't leave any scent behind. That's also very crucial. But if we have to walk to them stands because they, they, you, they can, you cannot have somebody drop you off for one, run, one reason or another, I've even went to the extent where I have a guy walk in with me, and then we get in the stand, and then I have that person walk out. So if they're paying attention to hearing that walking, then they think danger's come and danger's left. And that, that's worked as well for us, sometimes to trick them. You know, one of the other things, if I don't have that luxury where more, most people don't, they help by themselves, I just make sure that I make a stealthy, quiet, stand approach uh, travel corridor to my location if I'm hunting the interior into the woods. And that means clearing uh, a trail, clear debris, all the way to the dirt. So when I walk in there, I don't break a, a twig at all um, and, and try to, you know, stay, you know use, again, use the train to your advantage, whether it's a ditch, um, you know, keeping out of any visual sight of those deers. Just trying to avoid tipping them off. <laughs> so, so, so when do you when do you actually go and make those kinds of trails? Well, I mean, obviously, if we have the luxury, and now that changes. If if I have a piece, uh, if I have permission for a particular piece of property, or I own a particular piece of property, I'm going to hang stands. I'm going to do it well in advance. Um, usually, that's in the spring. We hang them. And then we'll go in there and just check on them, you know, during the summer, about a month prior to the hunting started. Like, I've had my tree stands trimmed, hung, and everything, like, two months ago already here in Minnesota. So they're they're dialed in and ready to go because um, I know my food sources and, and where, you know, I'm going to kind of target the deer. Um, I also let now, you know, over the course of the year – several years, learn a couple things. Um, I, I like the deer, you know, to have, I let the deer really have a lot of the timber for themselves, and I kind of hunt them on the outside now. I let the deer come to me, and I, I learned that by hunting in Illinois with guys that that don't step a foot in their timber ever, and they kill big bucks consistently. And I'm like, how do you do that? I grew up in a area where I had to go deep back in to kill a big deer. And now they're, kill, they're killing all these deer, and I'm like, and the guy's like, well, I let the deer come out naturally, you know. It takes several years for them to condition to do that. But after a while, if they feel like there's no pressure on the outside, and if you're hunting properly, they will eventually adjust, and they will come out in daylight hours, and you will be able to take advantage of that. And it's a low-impact situation. Because now you're hunting them on the outside, which means that you're not bumping them at all when you're getting into your stands. And if you hunt them right on the outside, they will never know they're being hunted. You know, because you, obviously you're getting in without bumping them. And then when you leave, a lot of times you leave in a proper manner that don't also alarm them that you're there as well. Now, it could be a vehicle coming in and picking up, an ATV, whatever. Or might be a stealthy approach out of there in the evening, where you slip, you know you get down and you slip out the back door, you know you drop over a ridge and out of sight and you know get out of there, 
or they might transition through that area and they might be out in front of you for a little bit there at a water hole or a pinch point and then they leave and they go out to another food source so they they're not even around you in the evening as, as dark approaches so you know i think <clears throat> i've learned that let the deer come to you instead of you going to the deer and hunting them on the outside but that takes a couple years for deer to condition to do that and likely and, uh, a likely a property where you can keep that pressure low, right? Yes. And if you you know a, a prime example is that I have, like I said, outfitters and friends that do that successfully. The Drury's, one of the some of the best deer hunters I know, in television for sure. I mean, undoubtedly, these guys they consistently kill giants. I would I would venture to say they do that a lot, and. They're very, very good deer. You know, I have known those guys for a long time, Mark and Terry, great people. Um, but they they put low impact on their farms. They, these are free-range and whitetails. They're no different than any other free-range whitetail around the country. I mean, they're tricky to hunt if they get pressured, but they're low impact, low pressure, and makes a huge difference. Now, I mean, I live in an area that gets a lot more hunting pressure here in Minnesota, so that changes that changes the whole complexity and you know your your game plan you now are thinking about hunting pressured animals i mean i live next to one of the largest wildlife management areas in the entire state you know over 30,000 acres it has great hunting but and it has monster bucks in it but it doesn't mean that you can go just you know, park in a parking lot, walk out on one of their trails, go find the perfect tree and set up on a deer trail and, you know, expect to kill a deer. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. I mean, if you're going to hunt, you got to figure out where these deer are going to obviously be feeding, where the food source is, where they're coming from, and then, you know, probably backdoor them. You know, figure out where that, they know where the pressure is coming from. So they're going to avoid that pressure. They're going to be, you know, traveling, you know, in such a way that they never get themselves in harm's way. So if you figure out how to come from the backside of the ridge and maybe in the morning be set up while them deer are filtering back, thinking that the pressure's kind of pushing them that way, boom, they're in your lap and you're in your bedding area and you can <laughs> can pretty, pretty much have a good hunt. Definitely seems to take a different level of aggressiveness when you're hunting those deer that are getting pressured a ton because you know you couldn't sit on the edge in a wildlife management area like that and expect to see deer come out into the field because there's going to be all sorts of other hunters in that kind of situation like you said make that adjustment get deeper in there or get to where nobody else will go and then you can and then you can finally get into those deer but i want to take a step back to something we you touched on a couple times um but i want to dive into a little bit further and that's the wind when you're in these areas of topography, lots of hills and bluffs and all that kind of stuff. Can you just elaborate on specifically the wind issues you have, why that's an issue, and then how you deal with that? Well, I mean, obviously the the, the wind is, you know, all over in every direction a lot of times create, created by the topography or the lay of the land. Now, sometimes you can... <laughs> think, hey, a northwest wind is a perfect wind, it'll be in my face, and you go sit there, and it's absolutely the opposite, and it's because the hill creates a vortex, so it comes over the top of the ridge from the northwest, 
like you think it is, and that's what the weather channel has told you the wind's out of. And then when you go sit in the bottom, or you're midway up a hillside, and now it's vortexing, and it's actually coming from the southeast. So it's absolutely the opposite wind um, of what you think. So you kind of got to learn over a course of time, by trial and error a lot of times, what the primary winds are in that particular stand location. Um, it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes, you know, the winds just are in every direction. But, you know, over the course of time, I've learned in some of our stands, like Tom's stands, Tom's hunted them, those areas for, you know, 15, 20 years now. He knows that those stands, what winds are perfect for those stands. So, I mean, he's got those slotted in there. And in our situation, um, you know, I mean, we try to stay up on top of the ridges a lot to hunt versus get ourselves over the edge or down low because then you are more susceptible to a swirling wind or a wind that changes or something like that, which, you know, it's hard to control. Um, obviously, we try to stay scent-free. <laughs> um, we practice being scent-free as much as we can um, by keeping our clothes you know, washed in scent-free detergent all the way from the start, stored in scent-safe environment until you get out there in the field and then dressing in the field. Um, you know, I mean, we wear, you know, technology clothes that, um, you know, keep the scent to a minimum that absorb scent situations. Um, but, I mean, and, and all that stuff is effective. I mean, you got to... You know, there's no cure-all, which means you can't go put on or spray down and think that you're going to walk out from work and that's going to, you know, cure, you know, any scent that you might have on you. It's kind of taking, you know, a series of steps to become scent-free. But that isn't a guarantee. I always say it just gives you a buffer. If you are really, truly scent-free as possible, then it might give you an edge to where if a deer comes in, he thinks you're not in his danger zone when you actually are. It might be like you're at, he senses you, but you're at 100 yards instead of you're at 20. So they might get nervous, and they may be like, oh, there's something here, but there's no, you know, really, there's no deer in my immediate danger zone. Yep. That makes sense. What about... Anyways, Sorry about that. That's good. My little one came in. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Speaking of those uh, of those types of situations, when you're in that hilly country dealing with that kind of wind, while that's also while that can be a challenge, right, hunting that kind of area with that wind issue, it can also be a benefit in that I think there's a lot of ways that terrain like that funnels deer. Is that something you take advantage of a lot? Well, uh, yeah, one hundred percent. I mean. Uh... You know, these hills and valleys do create funnels simply because there's uh, a lot of erosion that takes place here. So generally in each drainage, there's going to be a place where the water washes. And in most situations, over the course of time, especially this year, we've had a lot of rain, um, those those ditches uh, or, or drainages become impassable which means a deer have to, a lot of times have to kind of go up and go around a steep part or find a place to cross. 
um, from one point to another, and that funnels the deer. You know, some a lot of times it's at the top of the ridge or it's at the bottom of the ridge is where they can get through. It ain't going to be in a halfway point. So, you know, the steeper areas are obviously, you know, going to be impassable. So um, we look for those. Uh, but, again, I'll a lot of times choose the top of a, a ridge because I can get a truer wind. I use a ridge in my advantage in certain instances. I hunted a big non-typical years ago out in Bluff, at Tom's place in Bluff Country, uh, Outfitter's place in Wisconsin or in Buffalo County. He was a big mature deer that lived on Tom's and, you know, with the hunting pressure and stuff from, you know, years of Tom's hunters, he knew how to evade danger. He lived uh, out on a ridge that had no pressure because it wasn't Tom's piece of property. It was just a, an old guy had it, and and he never really hunted it outside of gun hunting. So that deer knew exactly where he had to spend his time. And he would kind of come on to Tom's, but he would come there during, you know, darkness, and we'd get a lot of photos of him. But I, I got permission to hunt this deer it was just one little ridge that this deer lived on. I mean, it wasn't a very big area. His core area was very small. He was six and a half years old, and I'd hunted him as a five and a half year old quite heavily, but but I was only limited to t- hunting on Tom's border, and that was at kind of halfway up that same particular ridge. And that deer, every time I would hunt him, he wouldn't show up, and when I wouldn't be there, I would get a picture of him. So I knew he was watching me get into my stand. So um, I got access to that piece of property, and I went and hung a stand on top of that ridge, and I hung it in a manner that with a south wind, it would blow my wind out. He would think he was coming into the wind, walking along the top of that ridge, but actually my wind was going out over the valley. So he would never be able to pick me out. And exactly what happened, I... And the second day, uh, early September, he walked right in. He got up out of his bed, which he was bedded out on one of the edges, and he was walking right along the ridge with the wind in his face, feeding on acorns, and he walked right in 20 yards, and I stuck him. Uh, Fortunately, I caught a deflection off a rib and went up under his shoulder blade instead of into his cavity, and off he went. I thought I made a perfect shot. It sure looked like it on video. That was in 2006. That deer was famous in that area. We called him Moses. And I did I did a show on him because it was a cool story because it had an outcome. Um, that deer showed up like a month and a half later on camera, all stretched out, perfectly fine, a big scar on a 12-ring spot right behind his shoulder. But, perf- I mean, nothing, no signs of, you know, being sick or anything. And, and then they killed him during gun season, so we got to see what happened. Wow. But uh, I fooled him because of the wind, and, and I used those edges of those ridges to get the wind in my favor and blow out over the over the ridge. And, you know, the deer think the wind is in their favor because they're traveling on the edge, so they can see down. They can see any danger from below, but then the wind's completely in their face, so hunting those lips are pretty effective. How do you get into those spots in the, for afternoon hunts. I imagine that's the challenge is because, right, they're set up so well where they can see down below them. They can smell, you know, like you said, usually they're better with the wind at their back so they can smell anything behind them. H- how do you get in there? Well, that was, you're right. 
that was a challenge. I knew it would be the challenge. I knew I had to get into that location early season when the foliage was still on because he could see me when the leaves come off the trees, no matter what direction I would come. I used the the ridge actually as um, part of the way I could get in. It, You know, the point would come out, so I knew he was more on the east side of the ridge bedded than the west side, so I used the west side to come up from. So it gave me that ridge as a, a hiding point, and of course your sound doesn't travel up over it, you know, just reflects and goes back. But I, there was a steep erosion ditch that came down from that top of that ridge, and I actually went in there in the middle of summer and cleared that out. It was sandy too, so it was real quiet, but I cleared that out. I cleared myself a trail and pulled, it was basically pulling myself all the way up it from using saplings to get into my stand. And when I got to the lip of the ridge, I basically got, I come out of that ditch and I just was right there in my, my tree stand. I was right there and up in the tree I went. It was so deadly and silent. I remember when I crawled into that stand for the first time, I hunted a one time, stuck the deer. I crawled into that stand that day, and when I got into it, I was pretty quiet getting in. I didn't want to make any noise because I knew he was really bedded really close. I got in there, and there was does bedded within 10 yards of that stand. They did not pay any attention to me and did not spook off. I, they hadn't seen me, and they, I didn't make any noise, and they couldn't smell me. So it was stealthy as all get out. And again, it, you know, I, we talked a little bit about paying attention to stand approaches and not tipping off deer and how you do it. I mean, it, it was just a great way to get in there. And it can be, I remember hunting one time um, a situation in, in Iowa with uh, Greg Miller and I hunted this place and out in uh, western Iowa um, in the Sand Hill area near the Nebraska border. And it was a cool spot because that area is not as big. It doesn't have as big a hill. It's a pretty, they're pretty small. And the steer were, it was a late, hunt, late season hunting situation where we were hunting out there muzzleloader season, which is, and the deer were all coming off this little hillside self-facing hillside and dropping into this alfalfa field we could i mean you can't like get out and walk across that alfalfa field and get in your blind and expect to shoot a deer because they you would domino them they'd see you but this guy he used a there was a like a creek an old creek bed and it was steep and, and, and kind of eroded out over the years and we would get into that creek bed about a quarter mile away drop into it from the his driveway, drop into that creek bed and walk to that creek bed all the way up to a blind that he had set up on the end of that little drainage. And we got, we crawl up and the deer would, they never left the field all day. I think they fed out there in that alfalfa field. We crawl up and right in through a trap door system and right into the blind and get up and peek out the window and there would be deer 20 yards in front of you and they wouldn't even know you got in. Wow. <laughs> Stealthy. That's ideal. But, People got to think like a deer. You can't go just blazing into your tree stands and expect that you're going to shoot a big buck a lot of times. Yeah. So, so speaking of tree stands and different setups like this, we've talked about you know how to access them smart. We've talked about different ways of dealing with wind. But something I've heard you mention before, and I think you mentioned it in your book too, 
was about ways of making tree stand sites even better than usual by using something you refer to as calling cards. Can you talk about yeah. what that is and, and what some examples of that might be? Well, you know, I mean, we, we have property that we own here in Minnesota and, and uh, not a big track of land, pretty small. Um, I started with, you know, just about 50 acres here, and, and um, it's hard to manage 50 acres and make it the best it can be. But I also have some decent neighbors, so I, I, I want to attract deer to my, my area. And I, I created an interior food plot back in the timber. Uh, it's only a half an acre in size. It's on top of a ridge. And, and we had a long time ago had straight-line winds that came through there and kind of knocked a bunch of the timber over. So it was already an area that it was kind of starting to grow up. I thought, this would be a perfect place to create a food plot, but it's going to take some work. So I went in there, sawed up, cut, and got a dozer in there, and we pushed the stumps off, and I cleared an interior plot. So that kind of started the momentum about building a nice little deer, you know, creating a deer uh, drawing card, so to speak, for an interior food source. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of people now thinking interior food sources, but you got to create an area for it. Uh, once I created that food source, um, it took a couple years to get it right. I mean, I you know, first I had to neutralize the soil and get all the debris out of there. and I put a lot of lime on it. I mean, I probably, a ton an acre at least, or not, even more. I mean, I turned the ground white. I had a guy come in there with just a, a lime truck, like a dump truck, and he just, I mean, spread it thick. And I, I started neutralizing that soil, because that soil is very acidic from all that leaf debris for years of leaf matter breaking down. So to grow good food on there right away would be pretty tough. So started conditioning the soil, started fertilizing it, had a guy bring in some, you know, some manure, get started working that in, getting that soil prepared. I also created a water hole. Now, if you hunt here in Buffalo County or you hunt here in our area, water holes are no secret anymore. Pretty much everybody that owns property in Buffalo County has a water hole on their property. It didn't start that way, but people have learned over the years. Um, I think a lot of it's due Tom... And a few of us started kind of that trend, but uh, water holes are super deadly, super effective for creating a drawing card, so to speak, to make deer come to a particular area. We build them on the tops of these ridges. We tuck them back into tight areas, you know, that are right on the edges of the bedding areas, and then... You know, we may obviously build little trail systems in to get in quietly and and get out. Um, but now you have a reason for a deer to come to that particular spot. And we learned a long time ago, deer can go without water, but they or uh, food, but they can't go without water. And all throughout the entire season, until it really gets frozen hard, the deer are going to use it. They're going to utilize it. Obviously, dry drier years they're going to use it more um but when when the rut's on deer or when it's hot deer gotta go, go to it and uh it's just just an area that really pulls deer in and i build so i build an interior food plot i always put a water hole in combination with an interior plot i mean it just goes without saying i'm i might plant stuff there 
you know, that comes up for forage and stuff for them, but also are going to be a water source. So I create two things right there. In my, I also plant fruit trees. I plant apple trees there because bucks really like apples early season. I don't know if it's sugar content, but they, they'll go to apple trees. A lot of guys kill big bucks on apple trees early season. So I plant apple trees, and obviously it takes several years for them to, you know, grow, so you got to cage them, keep protecting them from the deer. If you just plant an apple tree out there, the deer, it'll never never grow and never mature because they'll, they'll browse it off and it'll never never develop apples. So you got to cage them and protect them. You also got to protect them from mice because mice in the winter will chew the lower bark off them and you, so you got to tube them as well. A little bit of little work, but it'll pay off when they mature and my my apple trees are now maturing now, and they're producing apples. And it, it again, it creates a drawing card for them. So now I got apple trees, I got water, and I got food. In my food source, I have, I give them a selection of food, um, and that's tricky because it's a very small area, um, you know, half acre in size. Uh, I plant generally plant corn in the back um, because it, it's also a cover. Um, but I know when it gets cold, they're going to utilize that more. They're not; it's not going to be an early season. And then um, I also have clover and brassica planted in there as well um, around the pond. So I give them a, a different food variety for different times of the year. And when it gets colder, they're not going to hit the clover as much. They're going to go in the corn. Some places we plant beans, but the real trick to growing corn and beans and stuff in small interior plots um, it, it's tricky because for one thing you know the sunlight is an issue for making the food really grow good but the biggest issue is keeping the deer out of it while it's growing and maturing in order for it to be abundant enough when the season kicks in so you have to protect it or keep the deer out of there and we fence it uh, um, how do we fence it? Um, you know, it's we're not putting a high fence situation around this thing. In you know, it's not affordable. It's not effective. But what we've learned that works the best. And I've tried electric before, like a six strand electric, and and that works for a little bit. I'll keep them out of there for a little bit. But if they want in there bad enough, they're going to figure out how to get through that electric. I promise you. And then once they start tearing it up, tangled up. It's a mess. So the best case scenario is what we've done is we um, we just simply went and got some high steel pole posts that, um, you know, were over eight feet, and then we would go get snow fencing from, you can get it from Lowe's, you know, Menards, wherever, just any farm and fleet store, and you take that snow fencing, and then generally that snow fencing is like four or five feet tall, and you go around there and you just zip tie it simply to those posts that you put in and stretch it. And then you can put either a second layer of that on top or we use sometimes just the, the bird netting. And it's a black bird netting and we do the top portion in that bird netting. And the best part is when you want to take it down, you can. You just simply go and snip the zip ties and roll it back up and you're good for next year or some situations like in 
Illinois. We'll take a portion of it down, and we create a funnel that way for the deer to enter and leave the field. And now your food now fully matures, and it is ready for when you want to let them in. It works awesome. So this calling card, like it sounds like this in this example you're sharing, right? You've got a tree stand there. You put in this interior food plot with all these different types of food sources in there. You've got a water source in there, so you're adding a little more attraction. Um, I've heard you also talk about scrapes or mock scrapes or things like that. Do you do you throw in that type of thing into the mix too, just to continue to sweeten the deal? Yeah, absolutely, and and I do that more. Not even if I have an interior food plot, any tree stand. Um, you should uh, immediately, if you hang a tree stand and you have any um, indication that you're going to leave that there for the, you know, the course of the entire year, you should, you know, always try to create a mock scrape by it. There might, no, there might be a big scrape there already to where you can shoot to it, but. Um, I would, it's like a no-brainer. Why not create a scrape out in front of your tree stand to where you can get a buck to a particular spot right in front of you to get a clean shot? It just seems like elementary, but a lot of people don't take the time to do this. And it's not that you're going to make a mock scrape and you're going to kill that buck in there. I'm not saying that 100% that's going to happen, but you know what? It can't hurt try to mock scrape and if they start using it it becomes a calling card it really does and we've done it very effectively and and really what we do is i'll go out in front of my tree stand in generally one or two spots in front of there and i'll find um a tree generally an oak tree or some sort of tree that's green that it, that they're not going to crash up and be able to bust up really easy, I'll pull a branch down to where it's about six foot off the ground and maybe five and a half, but to where it's the perfect height for them to rub their antlers in. Now I'll then wire it back. I'll, I'll, of course, wire it from the, from the branch back to the trunk of the tree and I'll then, you know, take a screw or whatever and I'll put that wire around there. And I used to use a string and stuff like that, but the string would rot and they would bust it off, and it doesn't stay permanently there. And now, and then I clear all the debris underneath that branch. I, I've used urine in there before to activate it. I've used none, but I definitely clear out the debris and br bring that soil fresh and get all the rock and whatever else, sticks and logs, whatever, out of out of that area. So. Underneath that branch, it's just clear to dirt. And deer just naturally see those kind of branches and want to start utilizing them, especially if they're in there anyways for a food for food source. There's going to be bucks there. They're going to go to those overhanging branches and start using them. It'll automatically, but if there's no overhanging branch there, they, ain't going to, they can't reach it. They're not going to make a scrape there. They're going to go to where they can make scrapes. So I create that calling card so to speak and it works like a, a charm and every tree stand should have a mock scrape in front of it that you plan on being in your shooting lane or being able to shoot to it so it's like you can pull a deer in there just becomes 
you know, putting the odds more in your favor. So, yeah, yeah I mean, we do make mock scrapes in all of our, you know, stand sets as well, and uh, it works. It can work pretty effectively. Are, are there any other little tweaks like that that you make at most of your stand sites or other little habitat manipulations that make things better, anything along those lines? Well, in you know, depending on the laws in the state regulation, obviously you can add mineral sites to your your repertoire or calling card, um, you know, to pull them in there for that, bait stations, whatever. just depends on the laws in your your state. Obviously, in Minnesota, you can't use that. Wisconsin, you can. Um, just certain certain states allow baiting and certain don't. But not that a big buck's going to walk in there, but he might follow a doe that comes in there for that reason. Um, you know, I mean, some people are, of course, anti-bait. So, you know, it's not that you need to use that at all. Um, but it all, it all helps if you can utilize you know, making a deer come to your stand location for a particular reason. And I like these, like, we build these interior food sources and our food plots in areas that they really are staging areas and transition areas, you know, from the bed, bedding area, to more of a larger food source that's maybe a larger agricultural field or a larger food source that they're going to enter into later on after dark, you know, um, they'll come out in more of the open areas and start feeding at a much bigger food source. But uh, uh, as they transition and as they stage, they come into that, that smaller sort, you know, interior plot, and it works. It works really good. So, you know, that's what we've done, and then, you know, of course, it's it's worked well. I also hang. It's very important to note that in those. In those hunting areas, I have three different setups, generally speaking. So if you go to my half-acre food interior food plot right now, you're going to see three different stand locations I have set up for filming, you know. So I'm going to have at least two stands, sometimes three stands in, in a tree. Um, you know, because I take my kids sometimes. They like sitting with me, so I have to have a stand for them as well. But I'll have... Uh, I'll have two tree stands set set up for bow hunting um, for different winds. Um, I want to be able to go back there, and I want to be able to hunt. If it's a north wind or a northwest wind or something, I got a stand set up on one side of the food plot. Then I'll have on the other side uh, it's set up for a different wind. Of course, I, I kind of know where they're coming from also. I know where the deer are coming from, so I'm not wanting to alarm them in that way. And I also put a blind, permanent blind, and just in the last several years, permanent blinds have really become super effective for people that are owning and you know managing their properties. They're they're setting a lot more. Of course, so there's a lot more being manufactured um, out there. But now these we use a uh, a blind that's made by Muddy, and uh, oh, it's just built beautiful. You know, it's like it's like as nice as your house inside, but it's very scent tight. Um, the window systems are very quiet, so now you can sit in there no matter what wind you got, and be able to hunt. and And we love take the kids really go there um, because now I can get 
you know, three or four people in these blinds comfortably. And we can sit there comfortably. It's a much warmer hunting situation for when it gets colder. They can move around a little bit. They're not like they're sitting in a tree stand where you can get picked off as much. They, you know, just a lot better hunting experience for the youth and older people. It's much safer than crawling up and down a tree or a ladder stand. So permanent blinds have really become more effective way to hunt now and you know a lot of people you know, can archery hunt on them as well I, mean, I got an interior plot I can shoot out of there just as easy with a bow as I can with a with a firearm but I have each one of my interior plots I have two or three setups on each for, for different winds so yep. how often can you hunt an area like that with all so you've got all these different setups for different wind directions but how many times do you think you can get in there and out without a mature buck adjusting well if i pay attention and not leave any scent on the ground as many times as i want um without tipping them off i mean if they're if i feel like i spook a deer i'll give it some time to rest but if i don't ever spook a deer i think you can go in there as many times as you want people sometimes get a little bit crazy on like well i went in there and hunted a, you know so i gotta give it a week's rest if you leave scent or you tip deer off or you spook deer, I think, yeah, I definitely need to rest, especially a particular buck that you're after. If he busts you out of a stand, you probably should change your tree stand because he probably is not going to walk in there and let you shoot him out of that stand again. Unless he has to come there for a reason and he's pressured to come there. If it's the only food source and he's cold weather, he might walk in there again, but he might most likely he's going to pay attention to your, your tree stand. That goes without saying with any deer. Any deer that busts you, it it poses a future problem. Like an old doe, if she sees that you're in that tree or she picks you out, she blows the whistle, and she figures out that tree stands there, or you're in that tree, she's going to check it for the next months when she walks in there. She'll walk downwind or she'll come out and she'll look. So sometimes, you know, when you get picked off like that, you kind of, you got to change locations. I, a lot of times, I'll leave that stand there and we'll pull it down. I'll decoy them to where they'll come out and I'll look at that stand like an old low. I've seen it to where I move my stand 20 yards away from the other stand and I watch deer walk right in looking at that stand as they walked all the way in and I'm watching them. It's funnier than heck because they're, you can read their mind. They're walking in looking at that stand with nobody in it and they're like, I don't see anybody, and they keep coming, and they're like, they ease in there. They're very cautious, but as they get in there, they're like, ah, nobody's there, and they kind of like, you can see almost their attitude change, you know, it, because they're just on edge, and then you're still sitting there, and you're you're over in a different tree. You're laughing because you can read their minds, and but, you know, I mean, we've done it. We've decoyed deer. Um, so many times in the past where you know we'll put a like a big open field we'll have deer come out in that field and you can't get them you know one day they might be on the one side next day they're on your side so what we'll do is we'll take a permanent blind or something and we'll set it over there or cars don't generally work or a vehicle because they don't pay much attention to them 
be curious, but a blind is the perfect thing. Something out of the ordinary set out there, and then they come out, and they're like, what's that? And they won't go over there. They'll come over your way, though, and here you're sitting over there. So, <laughs> you know, it, it works good. works pretty good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I you know, good question, though, because a lot of people, like, <clears throat> you know, how how much time should I give a stand, you know, for going in there and hunting? Some people don't have that luxury. they got one tree stand. If you're bumping them or you're putting pressure on them, and I'm also staying very scent-free. Um, I do use a product that a lot of people now that are in the whitetail world are using, and it, it's very effective product. Uh, I think a lot of people have have had great success. It's called Nose Jammer. Yeah. And this, I, I'm sure you've heard of it. Yep. Um, it's a vanilla-based product comes in an aerosol can uh this product is uh basically a cover and um it also there's some product natural ingredient in it that helps kind of jam the senses smells of deer well i started testing this stuff before i ever endorsed it i know the guy that's done it and um i i wanted to test the product by spraying it on my boots because you know sometimes it, you'll get trailed in um, a deer will cut your trail from where you walked, and then, of course, they trail you all the way to your tree. That happens quite often, especially with two of us. So we started spraying this stuff on our boots and then walking into our stands. And then I started watching deer that would cross our trail. And before we used it, you know, they would, we try to spray, keep them as scent-free as possible, but they would trail and smell each weed and try to figure out where where that person went and follow you almost to the base of your tree. And then if they do get to the base of your tree, they're going to probably bust you because they're going to eventually look up and see you. So that's always a big concern of mine. So I started spraying nose jam around my boots, and I noticed when they cut the trail now, they might smell around or a little bit, but they're, they continue on. It do, it's like it doesn't it doesn't become I'm not a human to them anymore. So that's been a very effective product, and we also use it in the tree to help cover. If I got if I got a really bad wind or a swirling wind, I spray that on the you know the bark and the leaves around me, and it's very pleasant smelling. It smells like you're in a bakery, but <laughs> yeah. it becomes cover and helps mask your scent. So I know that you've heard of it. I know a lot of big buck hunters that are using it, and they're having pretty good success. Yeah, I've definitely seen the same thing. I kind of approached it skeptically at first but uh just like you i saw it work time and time again so it's definitely part of the repertoire now yeah and it you know vanilla is uh basically an attractant a lot of people use you know vanilla attraction um i mean back in the old days we used skunk urine fox urine i remember all that stuff scent wafers it was <laughs> uh, endless repertoire of cover scents and stuff like that i mean any years my stuff smell like fresh earth um but now you know i mean that's a, it's a great product and one that i'm not afraid to put my name on for sure um that works good to help mask them especially your boot walk in that, that's awesome yeah so so final question for you pat we talked a little bit earlier about how lots of times guys or girls have a job where they can go you know they only get like one week of vacation Lots of times they end up using that vacation during the rut. 
if you were going to give our listeners just like one core concept or piece of advice for really maximizing that hunt during the rut, what would that be? Mm, for one thing, going to a good place to hunt. <laughs> you can't <laughs> expect to kill a big deer if you're, you know, like a boon, you know, giant deer if you're going to hunt in PA in a high-pressured area or even, you know, hey. I'm going to use Michigan as an example. I hate to do that to you, but I'm just saying, you know, you got a much better chance at killing a big deer in Kansas or Iowa or Illinois than you do in Michigan. I'm just telling you. So you got to hunt where the deer are. That's pretty elementary. But I get it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that don't have that opportunity or don't have that time or money or whatever. It's not sometimes you can figure out ways to get there pretty economically. You don't have to go on a fully guided hunt. But... Um, planning that vacation time is very important because that's going to put the odds in your favor. And that's been trickiest part for us. Um, but I would never try to plan my hunt for the very peak of the rut um, to where you're hitting the lockdown phase because that can get very frustrating to shoot big mature deer. You're going to see mature immature deer all over the place, but those big giant deer get with does and that can be very frustrating because then they they go lock down with them and they're going to be with them does you know for a course of two or three days before they breed them and then they finally get sick and move on and go try to find another doe and then generally they can pick up a hot doe pretty quick and lock down with her so it's tough <clears throat> um, a lot of people like hunting that stage or that uh, and myself included, like trying to find that little uh, window of opportunity right prior to that peak rut and that pre-rut period to where them big bucks are now on their feet searching, but they still haven't picked up a hot doe, and they're moving. They're, I mean, basically their movements in daylight hours are giving them the exposure that you need to kill them and be in those hunting situations so, travel corridors, pinch points, areas that these bucks are going to be on, traveling through bedding areas, stuff like that can really, you know, up your odds. Um, but, you know, in each state it definitely differs. Like in Minnesota, you want to be here that latter week of October leading into the Halloween period because the really peak of the ruts in that first week of November period. Um and it's about one week later in Iowa and in Illinois and about a week later in Kansas. So kind of each, each state is a little bit different. But talking to people that hunt there and talking to, you know, people that know, are you know, they can give you those kind of dates of when that happens um, and when that peak is. And just those days leading into that period are really the best, the best times to be there before that rut gets into that lockdown phase. That's my that's my best advice and obviously going to those areas that you know give you that opportunity. Absolutely. Um calling works very good during that period, you know, rattling, grunting, blind calling. Can again call a big buck in cuz he's all of a sudden thinking, "Oh my god, there's two big bucks over there and they're going at it because they got a hot doe pinned down." And now the other big box, like, I'm going there because they're fighting for a reason. 
So, very effective way of calling. I uh, I gotta tell you, just every time I ever hear any of our guests start talking about that type of moment where you're rattling and the big boy comes in, that just gets me fired up and ready for November. So, <laughs> I yeah. am ready. I yeah, am absolutely ready. I mean, it's, it comes like a freight train and it's gone in, a, in, a, in an instant. So, that's what I find the most frustrating is, is you know, hitting that short wooden window and and then I always am more frustrated when Mother Nature throws you a curveball and it's like excessively warm and it Oof. kills the rut yeah. rut time and yeah, just I get so I get so mad when <laughs> you, if you if you got a full moon period and you got warm conditions and it pushes everything into nighttime movement, then you got to adjust your strategy. You know, I mean, if I got a full moon period and warm days I'm hunting in during that that good time i'll hunt late mornings um because deer generally bedded by at first light because they've been rolling i'll buckle lay there for a while kind of you know and then he'll get up and he'll start moving and that's when we nail these water holes because now it's warm out they're dehydrated they're thirsty so guess what the first place they do they go to the water hole for one thing they they got to cool down they got to get a drink but they also know does go there so they'll send check that area as well. So water holes in those situations are super, super effective for those kind of periods of time. And, and we've had tremendous luck, you know, shooting some big deer. You know, and you, you just never know when you get thrown a curveball. Mother Nature always seems like late season, you're you're fired up because you got a late season muzzleloader tag in your pocket for Iowa. It takes three or four years to draw. And you're like, all we need is snow. And it's like never never snow and cold temperatures. It's like <laughs> you might get one day, but now all of a sudden it's Christmas and you got to spend time at home with your family. Uh-huh. And by the time you get ready to go back to Iowa, it's warmed up to 50 degrees and you got southeast winds or east winds, and you're like, oh, my God. No deer, no mature deer movement to food sources. So, so much does depend on that weather, that's for sure. Can you, yeah, it really does. Can you super quick just elaborate a little bit on your thoughts on the moon there? You mentioned that it sounds like with a full moon you're seeing less daylight activity maybe, but can you just men- can you explain a little bit more about how you see the moon impacting deer movement, whether it be during the rut or any time of the year? Well, and it, and it definitely does affect it. I mean, no doubt. It affects everything. It affected our bear hunt this last week. Full moon periods are, are, are tough periods to hunt. Um, because it just makes deer more nocturnal and deer feed up. Night time, you know, it's generally cooler in the evenings and stuff. So, um, I mean, we got to hunt. That's what we do. So full moon or not full moon, you know, we got to be in the woods. But we see definitely a difference in activity during daylight hours when there's full moon. Um, now, moon positioning or, you know, where the moon is in relationship to the Earth is much different situation. There's kind of two different things. There's a phase and then, the you know, the moon position to the Earth, uh, which makes deer or animal movement different, too. So generally when moon is overhead or underfoot, means peak movement periods. And that's, you know, a time to be out there and, of course, hunting. Um that's when we pay attention to peak activity periods. And, you know, fishermen do the same thing as well as other types of hunters. But um, for 
moon phases, you know, full moon periods, generally four or five days after the moon is waning, where it's going, starting to go away, is generally, you know, when you're going to start to see an increase in activity and your movement. And, you know, the, the full moon is, is a tough one in some instances. But then if we have a full moon period, especially in that uh, rut, rut time, pre-rut time, we'll haunt. Won't generally be out there at day at you know first light. We'll back off our hunt to a latter morning set versus an early morning set. So um, knowing that them deer will probably be our bedded down for a period of time before they get up and move around. Generally starting around nine o'clock in the morning, they'll move you know till eleven or twelve and then rebed for the heat of the day. So interesting. Very interesting. The moon is always one of those things that. Uh, is always kind of fascinating because, there's a lot, like you mentioned, there's lots of different theories and, and different aspects of the moon that might influence deer movement. And um, trying to pin all that down and, and figure out ways to apply that to your hunting strategy, that's that's one of those things that I always get kind of a, a kick out of is figuring out how that piece of the puzzle fits into the larger scheme of things. Yeah, it, it's, it is. I mean, you know, it all goes together. <laughs> you got, I know people that just won't go unless the moon's activity chart says it's a good time to hunt. It, it, I've, over the years, we've paid attention to it. I mean, it, it does have a little bit of impact. Um, Adam Hayes, he's a guy, yeah. I don't know if you know who Adam is, he's a guy that 100% only hunts by the moon. And, um, you know, he pays very close attention to that, where that moon position is, um, and that kind of bases his hunting off of that. So, you know, I know that a lot of people, but in our instance, I mean, we're out there regardless of the moon position or phase, whatever. We just got to be out there every day because you never know when, you know, something happens. I mean, and a deer moves your way or in a particular animal. You know, another thing, too, it's kind of important to mention, I mean, when whitetail hunting gets kind of poor or lulled out, we we might change and we might go to a place that doesn't have it. Like uh, we do a lot of hunting before our hunting gets good. So we don't, we don't burn our spots out by over hunting them um, too much and not putting any pressure until the time is right to go in there. So we'll go to Canada and we'll hunt there for a couple weeks while they're their deer act much different. They don't lull out as much. They're um, they're in a whole different situation up there. So uh, we'll spend time hunting there for a couple weeks, and then come back here to the Midwest. Want just when our hunting really picks up and starts to get good, when deer really start hitting the ground. And you know, I mean, it's no secret that you can drive down, you can start driving the highways and start seeing when deer activity picks up because of the amount of road kills that are laying out along the roads. And, um, you know, you can almost sense the time that that happens. So, yeah, you can, it's definitely a very visual indicator. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you see it and you're like, ah, time to get into a tree. And, yeah, uh, exactly. And I guess with all that said, Pat, we've, we've kept you here a long time and I imagine you probably got a tree to, climb up into here maybe today or in a couple days so i'll be in a tree later i'll be uh like i said i earlier i said we're 
Um, Jeff Janis, who is the receiver for the Packers, has the bye week this week. So <laughs> talk about limitations. If you're an NFL player right now, you have a pretty limited time to be out there hunting, of course, with the football schedule. So he's the Packers have a bye week this week, so I'm jumping in the tree with him tonight, filming him, and we're over at uh, we're going to be hunting at Tom's in Buffalo, Buffalo County there at, at Buff Country Outfitters, and you know hopefully we can uh, see something. Last night it was it was a good night, but then it started getting really windy and it rained. We had a front move through and. It killed it. It was. It started out good. We started seeing some movement, and then all of a sudden the heavy rains came, and it just kind of shut things down. And, and I think uh, tonight it isn't raining. We still got a little pressure in, and now the next couple of days should be pretty good because high pressure is going to be moving in, and it's going to be cool, and those kind of things. You know, we didn't talk really about pressure systems, but. I talked about the juries and they're guys that really pay attention to high pressures and mm-hmm. you know when lows leave and highs start coming in them guys are in the woods and that, yeah it's just you know like us humans I mean when we get a nice sunny day we feel good and dry air comes in humidity leaves we're we're going to want to go outside well deer are the same way they want to move and get up and feed and feel good about it and um, those are the times to kind of, especially if you've had a period of low pressure, you know, damp, humid, and then all of a sudden now high pressure moves in, oh, that's the time to really be out there because you're going to see a good, real good deer movement. Well, that, that's exciting to hear that that's rolling in for you guys. I, uh, yeah. I've got a few more days till our opening day, four more days for me, so um, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to catch some of that decent movement here too and uh, – Man, Pat, I wish you the best of luck and really appreciate you spending some time with us. Oh, I, I'm sorry about the little technical glitches, but, yeah, it was fun, and uh, good luck to you this year. Hope you uh, shoot some giants, and good luck to everybody else out there, I hope, and uh, hope to see some photos and hear some stories. Have everybody, you know, everybody can go to our, you know, social media pages, whether it's hashtag Hunter or Driven with Pat Nicole. Send us some photos. Send us your stories. We'd love to love to see them for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and can you remind us again, where can we watch the most recent episodes of your shows? Uh, you can watch Driven every Tuesday night, 8.30 Central, 9.30 Eastern on uh, Outdoor Channel. And uh, then you can also watch hash, Hashtag Hunter, which is on the Sportsman's Channel, and it's on every Saturday night at 8.30. So, eight thirty both times Saturday nights and Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights are driven. Hashtag Hunter is Saturday nights. So, yeah, um, we got a we have a great year of lineup of shows and of course a lot of big deer hitting the ground. So, awesome. Well, I'll be sure to check it out and we'll, and we'll make sure to include all those things in the blog post notes too. So, great stuff, Pat. Thanks again, and uh, hope to hear some good stories from you soon. All right, same here. Thank you, sir. All right, and with that, we will wrap this episode up. And before we shut things down, though, we need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us today. I hope your hunting season is going as well as you'd hoped and dreamed it would. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.